Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Cutlass Podcast, audio and vision, uh, video versions. Uh, I hope this finds everyone doing well. If you're a new listener or a video watcher on YouTube, welcome. Uh, I hope you enjoy what you're about to hear and see. Uh, you know, my goal is to, you know, make you more sturdy, versatile, incredible leader and manager, uh, or remain one for those who have been in a position for a while, because as I've talked about in prior episodes, just because you learn something, you're effective at a certain level of leadership as you move up in an organization or into a different role or position in a different company, how you use leadership and your management skills does change and evolve. So uh, I encourage you to be a lifelong learner. There's never a I have arrived minute as a leader or a manager, and we'll probably talk about that with our guests today. Um, there's other, there's 50 other episodes on the podcast that you can listen to, and I'm starting to build the YouTube uh, library up. That's at Paul's Cutlass Classroom on YouTube. Uh, so there's, I guess, probably about 15 or so videos, and I'll keep building content there. So jump on over there, check that out, subscribe and uh, comment and offer me your feedback on those topics as well. I'd appreciate it. And then to those loyal listeners and subscribers out there, welcome back. Thanks for your support and feedback. Uh, I get feedback, I get emails, and I try to work those into future topics. So um, so one of my goals with, uh, you know, I just worked on and submitted the manuscript for the third edition of the Chief Petty Officer's Guide. It's been five years, so the Naval Institute uh, you know, revises those, or we take a look at them every five years. So uh, when I worked at the Naval Institute, you know, there was a realization that we had a Blue Jackets manual, we had a Chief Petty Officer's Guide, but I saw a gap. So uh, working with the Naval Institute, I wrote a Petty Officer's Guide, and I took a lot of the content out of the Chief Petty Officer's Guide, which I thought was direct level, small team leadership, rolled that into that. And that provided me the opportunity to now take Chief Petty Officer's Guide and elevate it beyond just the divisional chief kind of deck plate unit levels perspective. So we've built that content in. We'll take you to welcome to the mess from initiation all the way up to your journey to possibly be the MCPON or COCOM or the SEAC um, senior enlisted leader. So I'm excited for that. That'll probably take about a year to get through the editing process, but no need to wait for that to come out to talk about one of the areas I wrote which was preparing for new positions as a senior enlisted leader. So um, it's not just preparing for the position, it's succeeding while you're in the position as well. So you're going to find, uh, as a chief petty officer, if you don't realize already, you're going to have a point where you're going to make a career path decision, right? So you're going to find, hey, I'm more technically minded or technically focused, or I enjoy the technical management side more. And you'll either stay in your rating and progress up as a mass chief in your rating, perhaps get into some rating community management or health, or you can select to go to the LDO chief warrant officer route and get into technical management and leadership. The other path is going to take you on the path towards senior enlisted leadership uh, or what I think is the organizational management and leadership role. And that's the, the program we're going to talk a little bit about today. So with me today, back again is Force Mass Chief Toby Ruiz, um, you might recognize him. He was a guest on the episode advice on becoming a kick-ass public speaker. Uh, he now serves as the command mass chief for the Navy's leader and ethics center up in Rhode Island. And, uh, in that role, him and his team shape the leadership development continuum for all enlisted sailors in the Navy. So it's a really cool gig. It's a great uh, opportunity to influence. I'm jealous of that position because never had the chance to do it nor did I want to move to Rhode Island, frankly. But uh, he's served in a bunch of CMC roles. He's seen it. Um, he's been on boards and a variety of things. So I thought he'd be a great guest to dive in this topic and offer advice on this path. So Toby, welcome back to the Cutlass Podcast. How's everything going with you? Hey, brother, things are going great here. And uh, wow, I was just listening in, you know, 50, 50 episodes and building. And it's just, you know, amazing the the continued work you're doing for all of us to to continue to build on those leadership foundations. So it's been a little while since we did the uh, the public speaking one. So thanks for having me back, man. It's great to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that one's gotten some great reach and uh, offered some great stuff. So, all right. So let's get, you know, let's start with fundamentals. So what is a senior enlisted leader, right? Um, and I know we're going to do some history and where did this kind of role evolve from? It wasn't always just senior enlisted leader or SEL. That's kind of the modern version of it. So I'm going to throw it back over to you to give us a little background on that position and how it grew into what it is today. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to give you a little little history lesson of it, if if you will, uh, entertain me here for a couple of minutes. I don't want to be long-winded, but, um, you, you know, 
We've had CSILs, Command Senior Enlisted Leaders, if you will, since I think the evolutions of Chief Petty Officers and just haven't, you know, given it a formal title, if you will. Um, you know, they were always assumed to be your most senior uh, person of that commander unit you were with, uh, the oldest chief on board, kind of the father figure, if you will, to kind of help crews out in their day-to-day business. Um, if we go back to, to 1958 for a second, of course, we all know public law was enacted and created the E-8s and E-9s in the Navy. You know, in November of 58, we had roughly 149 mass chiefs selected, and we had, you know, a little over 900 uh, brand new senior chiefs selected. And uh, that was kind of the birth of the super chiefs, if you will. If you fast forward to January of 67, Mick Pondell Black, he was awarded the first, uh, appointed the first senior enlisted advisor, if you will, to the CNO to CNP. And that title changed, uh, obviously, a couple months later to Mick Pond. But basically, that person was the the spokesperson to address all the issues of enlisted personnel to the highest positions uh, in, in the Navy and also addressed some of these things to Congress as well. Uh, if you move forward to the early 70s, Admiral Zumwalt, Admiral Zumwalt, if you remember, became our CNO. Um, and he was, you know, given credit for reforming a lot of the things uh, that we, uh, you know, kind of enjoy in the Navy today, personnel policies to help improve quality of life items and uh, easing other tensions, whether racial, social tensions across the force. Um, And in previous podcasts that you have mentioned, we talk about these Z-grams that he put out to help make some of these changes. Uh, and one of the things that came of this was that he released a Z-gram that created what's called a CNO CPO advisory board. This board was made up of eight master chiefs, senior chiefs across the fleet that would get together with the MCPON to advise the CNO on all of these things that are going on. And this is now, you know, that was then the very beginning of what we now know today as MCPON's leadership mess of all the flag officer uh, CMCs across our entire Navy. Um, ZGRAM 95, which was released in early 71, had announced the creation of Master Chief Petty Officers of the Command. And what this did now is it replaced that CPO advisory board, the leadership mess, if you will, grew a little bit to around 25 or so. And now those positions now are what we know as our fleet and our force Master Chiefs uh, across the Navy. So again, still focusing on these enlisted issues, but also now identifying specific areas across the fleet and across our Navy uh, where to, uh, to to help address. Later on, um, that century there, we, we created what was then also called the Master Chief Petty Officers of the Command, designating those down now to individual units. Um, and, and then later, of course, we know it as this, now the Command Master Chief Program, and, you know, we're hundreds and hundreds full with this job now. And the job of those CMCs are exactly what we do today. Assist the commanding officer in monitoring the morale, the training, the development, good order and discipline, and, and job satisfaction amongst all of our sailors. Uh, to be the sounding board for those commanding officers, and probably just as important, to be that one, to be the truth and power. Uh, you know, to be able to tell the CO some things they may not want to hear, but but it's for the better of all. Um, the Command Master Chief rating actually became an actual rating in 2001. And then 14 years later, we created Command Senior Chief ratings for your smaller commands. Uh, in today's times, we got about 750 Command Master Chiefs and Command Senior Chiefs across the Navy. Um, and while we have them in a lot of the places we need them, not every command still has one, and that's where we also have what we call our command senior enlisted leaders. These are usually, again, your senior uh, members of the command that are designated by those COs that, hey, you are acting in the role as my command master chief. Uh, designated writing, we send them up here to Anlick for some training, and then they still fulfill those roles. So, um, again, a little bit long-winded. Thank you for tolerating me on that, but that's from where we started to where we're at today. Very important position uh, in our Navy ranks. Yeah. And it grew out of a realization that, uh, there wasn't a representation or a perspective that got brought into policy and broader decision-making, um, which was leading to a lot of dissatisfaction and of note, it wasn't just the Navy. We weren't the first ones who had that position. 
Um, it started with some of the other services, but all the services have one. And now eventually we grew that into the DOD level, the joint level too, with com- you know combatant commander, senior listed. There's some joint task force jobs. And then ultimately there's the senior listed advisor to the chairman of the joint chiefs. Uh, and these paths can go all the way up to there. So we'll touch on that. Um, so let's talk about, hey, I'm a person, I'm at that decision-making point, you know, um, what do you find, what would you tell me is the most rewarding thing about serving in those roles? And then what are some of the challenges and frustrations that I would want to consider when making that decision? Well, you know, I, I think the most rewarding, and I was a Navy counselor prior to becoming a CMC. And one of the things I loved back then about being an NC was I got to deal with sailors and, and talk about doing, you know, giving them information educating them on things that they needed to do to help stay Navy or for those that chose they wanted to move, you know, move on uh, in a civilian career afterwards, help prep them for that. And I really loved all those interactions. As I became more senior of a Navy counselor, I then realized, hey, I got NC1s and NCCs who need to do that role. And I'm just kind of the, you know, the, the, the higher level, you know, whether it's bean counting or just kind of the policy making person for that. And I lost touch with that. I kind of lost, you know, I, I had to let my other NCs be the ones to do that frontline stuff. So when I became a command senior chief, that's where why I wanted to join the program. Getting out, interacting every day with those sailors, I think was one of the biggest rewards that I had. Um, a lot of times to be utilized to help solve problems or help our sailors solve problems that they've got. And that was very rewarding to me. Having the ability to be able to talk with my COs and, and, and give them advice, give them some of that hard conversations that sometimes, you know, that, that they don't want to hear, but would definitely impact them. Uh, that was always great, you know, especially thoughts that they needed before they would make a decision. Um, when I got up into the senior ranks, I enjoyed a little bit of that autonomy that came with the job as well, being able to you know, being an extension of the boss, if you will, in, in communicating, you know, messages and, and those leadership type of roles. Um, and, and, but I think probably the biggest thing that I really enjoyed about, you know, I enjoy about being a CMC, is just celebrating sailors, celebrating their successes, celebrating when we as a unit do something very, you know, very effective. We meet missions, we do it well. And to celebrate those successes, I think that's probably one of the biggest uh, rewards that come with the job. You know, at the same time, there's a lot of challenges. <laughs> there's a lot of frustrations that, that, that come with this as well. Um, there's a lot of change that goes on. And one of the things that we have to be on top of our game all the time is understanding, you know, quickly learning what is that change because it's up to the CMC and the C and the CPO mess, if you will, to lead that change, to be able to to, you know, to help get that change and, and make it done in as smooth a transition as we can to continue what we're doing. Um, sometimes the relationships aren't always as we want it to be. Um, relationships amongst our peers, relationships within your mess. Sometimes your CO and XO don't have the same thought patterns that you do, and that kind of puts a strain. So that could be a challenge at times in learning and working around that. Uh, work-life balance sometimes is a little tough. Um, you know, we, we tell CMCs, hey, um, you know, there, there's a lot of times that leadership is needed amongst our ranks and it doesn't, it's not just a nine to five job. You know, it's a 24-7 job. You know, being a CMC is hard work and hard work is authorized. So let's get to it. Um, and I think the last thing frustration wise is that for me, and this is me personally, I think a lot of times when something doesn't go down that I that I was hoping it would, the way it would go or the, the way I kind of planned it, envisioned it. Um, I'm very self-critical. I, we talked about this during the communications uh, topic. We did a few, a uh, few episodes back yeah. where I'm very self-critical and I always wonder, and I always question myself, what could I have done better? You know, where did I drop the, the, the ball on this? And even if I didn't, you know, you still get that, that sense of responsibility, that sense of accountability, if you will, to always try to make sure that that doesn't happen. So that can be frustrating at times as well. Yeah, I'll offer, you know, for my personal experience, um, all the rewarding things you've talked about, absolutely. Um, my big thing was 
you know, I just felt myself wanting to be this kind of policy agent and kind of change. There were things, you know, I grew up as a Navy nuke, as you know, and there were things, you know, I found myself wanting to vocalize kind of recommendations to cultural barriers to change and things like that. So the, the ability to influence policy, whether at the command level or the force level or the TICOM or the fleet or the Navy wide level that impacted the quality of work and quality of life of sailors and their families um, was a big thing that drove me. And one of the most rewarding things you can do um, at the same time that comes with challenge, right? Because as you do move up in the organization, um, there are other people that are shaping that, right? And to your point, not everyone agrees with your perspective, right? You are bringing a perspective and an experience set into that discussion and that governance structure, but there's others as well. There's people that own money. There's people that are into politics at the pol political level. There's other stakeholders that you don't understand their perspective. So you come in as a champion, just realize the frustrating thing is there's other people on side of that other line yeah. necessarily uh, not after the same things you're after. And then well, the other thing I found rewarding for me, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I wanted just to, to chime in on that while it was fresh in my mind. And you're absolutely right. As a young CMC, I'm a very, I'm a very emotional kind of guy. You know, the, the, the glass is half full. Uh, you try to see the goodness out of everything. And, um, as you get more senior, as you discussed in there, uh, with and especially when it comes to policies or giving feedback, things like that, a, a lot of times those decisions are based more on historical data, based more on projections. You know, the 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 number side versus the feeling side, and you know that that took a little bit for me to understand and grow into that as we as, as was starting to get into more senior positions. And that can be hard sometimes, especially as you said, when you're championing for something you think is a benefit for all, but you have to look at all other aspects to that as well. And the other thing that you had mentioned is that one of the biggest compliments I will always have of being a CMC, I think is when your CEO will not make a decision or your boss will not make a decision without your input. Uh, when I was a force master chief nav I for my boss, Admiral Kohler, um, specifically stated that, that he would not make any decision on something without, you know, I want to hear what what's on force's mind. And, and that's a very big compliment because he doesn't have to listen to me. He didn't have to hear, you know, a lot of things we talked about. And to your other point, there were a lot of things we disagreed on. And even though I gave that, you know, my my side of it, my counsel, if you will, um, he decided to go in the other direction, and that's absolutely fine. Just the compliment there that he wanted to hear me out and make sure that you know I was able to offer what I could um, is also a big reward in that aspect as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the other one I wrote down was um, for me as a nuke, I was stovepipe, right? So I had done aircraft pairs, done the bull nuke thing. I had done a prototype and structure. There wasn't much career position diversity, right? So um, applying for the command mass chief, program now made worldwide assignability um, available to me. Some people don't want that. Some people want to stay in one location, but um, I got to see a variety of things over my career. I got to go to Japan, Guam. I got to serve in an aviation squadron. I got to do some really cool things I would have never done as a Navy nuke. So I thought that was a uh, rewarding part of it that, that think people should consider uh, when they're doing this. And one more barrier, again, as you move up, one of the things I realize is like, at the deck play level, the unit level, man, day to day, you can do something, you could have career development boards, you could see teams doing stuff and know you left that ship every day or that squadron knowing like, man, we're doing stuff daily. People are making things readiness, they're generating readiness, um, or we're making, we rewarded people daily and you could see an immediate daily impact. You start moving up. Now you get into bureaucracy. Now you get into policy, creating requirements, right? So things move slower. So again, if you're impatient like me, and many others in these positions, because I think we are, you know, classic alphas. Um, we're motivated. We want things happen. You got to be prepared that things don't happen. They may even lap, you know, uh, an initiative you might have. It's going to be a baton you typically pass off to your predecessor. So you'll trade that off as you move up. So, all right. So real quick. Um, so talking about thinking about the program. So the program does get criticism, right? It, there are people that frankly, shit talk it. I'll say for lack of a better term, uh, I don't think they understand it. Um, and a lot, of, some of it is they are political positions, quote unquote. So 
Um, why do you think that perception exists that, hey, we're just politicians, I'll never go into it, it's too political? And then what would you say to that chief, senior chief or mass chief who immediately dismisses the career path with that perception? Yeah, you know what? I, I haven't heard that as much anymore. Um, you know, that that's always a, a talking point, though, is, you know, oh, yeah, you guys are just political. Uh, no such thing. Uh, as, as a CMC, there's no such thing as a political position. I think people sometimes think that when, when you become a command mass chief, uh, a C-cell, that w- we become a politician or maybe we're a puppet for what big Navy, you know, thinks that everybody wants to hear. Uh, and, and sometimes because there are certain times that we have to talk in a very certain way to appease everyone, to, to be proper, if you will. Um, and, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Do we have to know how to communicate properly? Absolutely. Uh, but we all get that training in route from, you know, the enlisted leader development, you know, where we do from first class to chief, the SEA, we, re- we refine that and everybody needs to go to the SEA if you want to continue upward mobility. So there's a time to communicate properly. I, I, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a time place with that, but it's like that in every position we do. Uh, whether you're that deck plate chief uh, all the way up again to CMC and above, we all have those times that we have to properly communicate. It's not a political thing. Um, and, and again, I, we like to call it here the RIP effect. Um, we communicate to establish relationships. And, and in, in, again, we know, have to know how to talk within those relationships. But in those conversations, the I part of that is we influence. We, we, do, we make sure that we do everything we can to influence a decision that's about to be made or influence others on why a decision was made. And then, of course, we also, as part of that communication, the P part of that is the perspectives, making sure that all perspectives are covered. And again, some of those perspectives are things that sometimes people are not going to want to hear, whether it's the CPO mess that is learning about a new policy and we have to be able to get it to to their understanding on and and answer the whys for them, um, or whether it's to that boss or to leadership that you're trying to advocate something for, and they may not want to hear it from that perspective you're bringing. Um, that's, I think, where a, a lot of the mix up between political uh, and, and non-political conversations are. So I, we always try to debunk that theory. Being a CMC has nothing to do with being a politician. Um, there are other times we're going to have to behave that way. Yeah, maybe, but more times than not, it's more about being real to influence those relationships that influence perspective. Yeah. Um, so I wrote down ambassadorship, right? So you're representing your organization, right? You're not just representing your boss, right? So yeah, the way you represent that organization, I don't care what level you are, a chief, a mass chief, a senior chief, right? One of the hats you wear is an ambassador of the Navy, right? So you're not going to go out and speak in certain ways to certain audiences, right? So the other difference I think is, I've always said this, um, I think it is a political position, right? So, and I'll read it. So politics is, it's from the ancient Greek affairs of the cities. It's defined as the set of activities that are associated with making decisions in groups or other forms of power relations among individuals, such as the distribution of resources or status. So yes, I did play a role in Navy politics, right? I was a a representative of that enlisted perspective into the decision-making machine, right? And you want that. That's why that program came up. That's why we got into a bad space prior to the advent of these communities because the enlisted voice wasn't represented. That constituency wasn't represented in the senior decision-making circles of the Navy and the other services. So when it comes to politics, there is a politic role, but I would offer there's a politic role for every senior enlisted leader, right? So that mass chief running a department has, is doing politics on behalf of the sailors to their department head. Yep. So I think where they get it confused is politically correct. So they think you have to be politically correct. Uh, so let's not confuse being political and being in politics uh, of the military with politically correct. And some people just don't want to do that. And that's okay, right? That's the kind of do that technical management lane. But uh, I get it. Some people can be politically correct to a fault, right? They won't tell the truth. They'll start to think differently about, you know, 
uh, my career could be at risk or this and that. That's when you get into a bad spot. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that, that's a great clarification there that, that you, you put in there about be, being politically correct. You know, you can give the worst news that you can. And as long again, you're the way that you communicate it out, the way that you talk about it. And that's why, again, we stress so much about communication. There's a time and a place. Uh, and, and again, I, I, many, many chiefs are already being political and they don't even realize it. It just, again, in certain situations that they have to be in. And again, it's not a bad thing. But again, there's a there's a correct time and place for that and always want to fall back that, you know, uh, every, we can all play those respective roles as we need to. The most important thing, as you said, is getting the right word out and, and not um, not watering down the message, whether up or down the chain of command that we have to. Yeah. And there's also some criticism from the wardroom side, right? So I've seen that, like, they don't fully understand the role. They think you're trying to be the second in charge and trying to displace the XO or the deputy or something. What's been your experience with that? Not too much. Actually, what what is interesting uh, that I have noticed is that sometimes, you know, members of the wardroom, department heads in particular, or maybe some of your, your senior division officers, they... They try to get in to talk to the captain or to try to share ideas or are coming up with something and they can't get into the captain to see them. And I think one of the important things is, is if they see you, the CMC out and about and, you know, they will want to talk to you because guess who you have the ear of and have more access to probably than they do. And so that could be a very uh, big strength used for both if, again, done in the correct way. To, to, hey, CMC, you know, I was thinking about this, want to talk to the captain about that. What do you think he or she would say? Uh, I, I think that's an important position to, to be able to have and maybe, you know, break down some of those particular barriers before they get the chance to talk to the captain. Or maybe I can go sound the captain out for those respective individuals. So um, I don't think they ever see it as a hostile takeover as much as, you know, hey, maybe. I, I can use some of this uh, sage guidance as well from the CMC. Yeah. And I think, you know, some are better than others at the role, right? And, you know, some officers, you know, as young officers or exos have a bad experience with the command mass chief and then that shapes their perception. So yeah. again, uh, that's one of those things. So, all right. So we've talked a little bit about overview. Um, let's get into kind of some of the roles and responsibilities. Um, so how's it being a CMC different from being a departmental LCPO? Well, I think being a CMC now, you're, you're, you're no longer, again, in your specialty that you grew up in. Now you are command level. Everything in that command is, is under your purview now. And, you know, if you're a CMC, you are not just the advocate and the spokesperson for the enlisted person. Everybody at your command, and that includes the wardroom that we were just talking about, every sailor on board that platform is your sailor, regardless if they're enlisted or their officer. Um, although again, you're no longer in your source rate, no longer in that community that you may have grown up in or that primary job. Um, I would say though, that as a CMC, don't underestimate the, the possible need or the opportunity that may arise where you need to fall back on, on some of those roots as well. And I think back to like when we had the coal, uh, terrorist attack, um, you know, one of the big, stories there was the fact that the CMC, James Parlier, was a prior corpsman and was a significant, uh, you know, role player after the after the hit in helping care for his sailors. And, you know, they set up an, an aft uh, um, uh, battle stations to be able to, to, to medically look after uh, his particular sailors that, that were in his need. Um, when I was a command senior chief, I would have to stand watch underway from time to time as officer of the deck underway. Uh, that's not the norm, but because when you have shortages, you have an in situational awareness of what's going on in your command, you may be called upon to, to, to come back and fill some of those roles. So never, you know, never lose the, your roots, if you will, as part of that. Uh, 
regardless of what command you're going to, and I like you, Paul, you know, I've served in, this is now my sixth community as a CMC, over eight CMC tours. Um, and there's a lot of learning that goes with this, but you should always be familiar with all the work centers, all the divisions, your codes, whatever you're calling it at your commands um, to know what what, the, what they are doing and where they're at in your commands and, and visit them often, you know, keep up with what they're doing, what they're, cause their, their missions change just like ours do as well. But it shows one that you care for them. It shows that you're interested in them and what they're doing and allow them that opportunity, uh, if you will, to, to show off to you, Hey, check out what this, you know, what we can do, check out some of the cool things we're doing here. And again, then that also helps you, translate what they're doing to the bigger picture of the command and be able to make sure that everybody else understands that as well. Okay. Um, yeah. So one thing I've, I've mentioned other episodes, so you're definitely moving and stepping away from the deck plate each level we go up. So I know we love the t-shirts with deck plate leader and that's great. But once you get you know, you make senior chief, I say you take a step away from the deck plate. When you go in that department LCPO role, right? Your aperture opens, your influence targets change, who you work for changes, who you shape to influence changes, mm-hmm. um, and your view, right? You should learn about all the ratings within that command, right? So you are opening your scope. And then again, as a command mass chief at the unit level, at least, the aperture has to open again. So now I'm looking at command-wide process, command-wide policies, not just units, right? Not just my rating. Um, how do I shape and assess unit culture and climate, right? How do I help coach my boss who's a commanding officer? And that's a different thing too, right? Um, a relationship as you go up with a, a more senior officer, um, you might've worked you know, as a division chief, maybe with a lieutenant, and then you move up to an LCPO job working for an 0405, right? that comfort level, you have to get used to that, but it comes over time. And then next thing you know, you're working for an 06. It's different, right? They're more experienced. So there's not this same relationship you had with a young division officer. So that changes as well. And then I think, uh, and you mentioned this, your influence charts change, right? So instead of the LPO and the division officer at the, at, at the command level, now XO, uh, CO, department heads, right? I'm worried about the functioning of the entire wardroom, right? Mm-hmm. I'm worried about the functioning of the entire cheese mess. I'm worried about the relationship between the wardroom and the cheese mess. So I think being able to see the command in its component parts and how they come together is a different perspective. You've got to change. Um, and you should start to be seeing some of that, I think, right, as an LCPO, because mm-hmm. um, you're coming in the meetings usually facilitated by command mass chief. Um, and then, uh, you know, again, your relationship up is now with an ISIC command mass chief, right? Who's, you know, external to. Um, so there's a lot that changes, I think, at that point. And then the responsibilities, right? You're on a diff- bunch of different boards and panels that are outlined in commands and instruction and things like that. Um, I love that point about Jim Parlier. Like I had him on an episode of the Cutlass podcast. He talks specifically about that experience. Um, I had to do it too. My first tour on the USS Juno. Um, engineering department was in a bad spot. You know, my commanding officer was a 06 doing his post carrier XO ride, you know, getting ready to track the carrier command nuke trained. And he's like, Hey, mass chief, I need you to go nuke on me and come down the propulsion plant. So I was able to, you know, leverage that experience, you know, um, without being overbearing and taking over per se, but it can happen to where you find yourself being leveraged for that rating expertise. I think one of the other things that you talked about with with relationships again, Paul, is that at the command level also, you get exposure to everybody on board. And so when it comes time to either influence change, help lead a change, you know, you find those members on board and they could be a couple from engineering, a couple from, you know, supply, wherever they're at. You, You also have that ability because if you're out and reaching out to them at the deck plate level, to be able to to solicit them to help them help you get some of that messaging across, you know, as your trusted agents, as your allies, uh, it makes you know change. It makes communication a lot better, especially if they're in in, in tune with you on what you're trying to influence. And um, and again, at each level, you're right. The communication part is going to change. Uh, it's not 
you don't have to be politically correct about it as much as just knowing how to properly communicate it. So, yeah, that's a huge piece. I mean, the communication skills, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, so what's the career path for a senior enlisted leader look like? Where's it start and where can it go for, and I know this could be a long discussion, but yeah. if you need to distill it down into big, big kind of steps, I guess. So normally we, we become CCLs in one of three ways. Either you stay in rate. There are some communities, as I talked about earlier, that um, they do not have rated command master chiefs, either because of size or, you know, some there's a couple rates that need that technical expert just as much as the leadership side. So they stay with CCLs, if you will. So that's one way. If you're a senior chief, you can apply into the command senior chief program. And, uh, and, and if you're selected there, you're basically doing the same roles, if you will, as a CMC, uh, just at a smaller command level, uh, you know, but you still have that same positional authority and, and, uh, and, um, and fall in the organization the way we do that. And then from command senior chief, then you would promote up to command master chief. Uh, that's the second part of that. Or we have some that grow up all the way from E1 all the way up to master chief within their rates. They do their their tours there. They do a couple tours as a master chief, kind of, you know, the I'm paying back to my community, trying to influence there where I can before they realize now, hey, maybe it's time for that next step, getting away from the senior departmental LCPO and let's instead go the command route so they can laterally convert uh, from uh, their their source rate, whatever they are, as an E9 over to command master chief. Those are normally the three ways we see it. Um Chiefs of the boat, very similar to command senior chief on the submarine side. Uh, they, they would still do their role as a chief of the boat, normally as a senior chief, and then promote their way up once they're done with that tour. Um, how you get there really depends on, on a few things. But in particular, again, how long have you been in the Navy? Uh, you know, how long have you been uh, either promoted to, to E8 or E9, if you will, and how much time you have on the backside to be able to want to serve in some of these types of positions, um, you know, and then even as a CMC, your career progression, normally you'll start at the 05 level for your CO, uh, your deck plate level, if you will, tactical, and then kind of work your way up. Maybe then you do a tour with an 06 or a couple of tours with an 06, um, get some more of that experience before coming up into the flag ranks. Sometimes we, kind of diversify around. So again, Paul, you and I both have kind of done this in our in our ways where we jump from community to community. Uh, I've been with surface, I've done aviation, I've done information warfare. Uh, DC is considered a community. I, I will I will consider them that um, before playing with the Marines and that and now here in the educational realm. So if you have time to be able to maybe try a different community out and learn how to lead in that group, that, that can present yourself as well. Some people would rather stay closer to their source ratings, if you will. We have a lot of command master chiefs that um, were former corpsmen, and so they stay leading in the corpsman side of the world, whether hospitals, whether large deployable um, medical units, Marines, and so forth like that. So several different ways, I think, again, based on how long have you currently been in service and, and eligible for these leadership type of ranks and, 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 and roles. And then also, what do you want to do with that time? What is your goal? Do you want to be a force master chief? Do you want to be a fleet somewhere? Do you want to make more impact in a specific community? Um, you know, that, that all goes into that, that formula, if you will. Okay. Awesome. And then obviously, you know, you know, you get up and then there's the opportunities as you move up, um, eventually you could be a combatant commander, SEL, you know, serving for PACOM into, you know, or Indo PACOM now, UCOM, those kind of things, or the senior enlisted advisor, the chairman. And although we're focusing on Navy here, this kind of general, each has their specific, each service has their specific senior enlisted leader program outlines and requirements, but these kind of career paths and general paths up are, are pretty consistent. So and the most right. important thing uh, with that, Paul, is that, again, our, what we call our NTMS, our Navy Talent Management System for the CMC ranks, a lot of it, you you are brought into those conversations because of what you have done at your current commands. And I, I can't stress that enough to CMC, C-cells, wherever you're at, whatever job you're in, every job needs a good senior enlisted leader. 
Uh, they every command deserves a damn good CMC. So wherever you're at, um, you know, lead, do what you're supposed to do there. Let your your work, let your results, and let your reputation dictate then what what could be in the future for you. Absolutely. So here I am. I'm a new chief petty officer back in 96, seven timeframe. And I was going to check out, I was on the USS Mississippi at the time we were decommissioning. So I had about a year as a chief under my belt, but I didn't lead a division because we were in this crew work, right? We were in sections. Mm-hmm. And I was doing my checkout interview with the commanding officer and, you know, doing the typical stuff. And then, um, he looked at me and said, one day you're going to be a command mass chief. And I'm like, okay. You know, my young chief brain, I was like, I wasn't even bought into the Navy at this point, believe it or not. Right. I had not reenlisted again. So I'm like, I definitely wasn't a career dig it at that point lifer. Um, so I'm like, yeah, whatever this is to myself. Right. Um, sure enough. Right. So clearly he saw something in me, right. Some attributes. So as we're looking around, um, what are the attributes the program looks for? What's the knowledge level the program looks for? Um, so that candidates who are thinking about it can evaluate their their strength in these areas. What are those kind of things and the advice you would offer for knowledge, skills, and abilities to be successful in this program? Well, so I think at a, at a unit level, probably one of the most important things we do as command master chiefs is, is leading our CPOs, leading CPO messes. Um, you know, th- that, you know, the, you hear the the old saying that, you know, chiefs, uh, chiefs are the backbone of the Navy, chiefs are the ones who run the Navy, um, but we can't do that if we don't have a united mess. And again, those that have been inside of a mess know that sometimes, you know, we, we have, we could go in very different directions if we just kind of let them run amok. So I think one of the first things that any, you know, CMC has to be able to learn to do is to be able to lead that mess, get them in the direction that we need to go to make our units, uh, successful, uh, and that we can meet command mission. I think one of the other things that CMCs have to be able to do is what we talked about earlier, communicating with that triad, having a battle rhythm with your CO, knowing what their, um, knowing what their priorities are, and then, you know, being able to talk to them and make sure that everybody from the, your, your most junior sailor all the way up can understand what those are. Um, and, and again, within Talking with your COXO, we 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 preach a lot here on the importance of radical candor, um, being able to provide feedback and and provide things that they need to hear that they probably don't want to hear, but you got to do it to make sure they understand the scope of the decision they're about to make on something. Um, it's not being unprofessional. It's not being let's see how much I can get away with to piss the captain off. It's nothing like that at all. It's simply making sure they understand that and that they they hear that before that goes. So I think that's important as well. Um, being a good listener, you have to be able to listen to what those problems are around you and not immediately jump into something where you think you know the problem when you don't have the full background. That's, I think, another important thing that CMCs have to do at the at all levels, but especially at the unit level. Um, you know, some of those knowledges that we should have, what's our, what's our mission of our unit that we're at? What is our main job that we're supposed to do and making sure everybody understands that knowing what the capabilities are as well to be able to meet that mission. And then again, I think another role for CMC, a beauty of what we got is we can just assess now knowing what our capabilities are, what we should be doing. Are we able to do that? And if we are able to do that, all the different units, uh, I'm sorry, divisions and, and rates on our Navy able to do that, then, and we're doing it well, why are we doing it well? What's making us on top of our game? And then I think just as important is what are we not doing well? And what do we need to be focusing on more? And again, back to training, back to readiness that we should be tracking. That's something we really need to pay attention to, you know, not only identify it, but then work to get it done. And I, I think the 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 last big one I would talk about here is just our ability to network. Chiefs are good networkers. We should be good networkers. Command mass chiefs, you have to be, you have to know who's who around you at any given time because you're going to be given situations that you know you're not going to be able to handle inside. So who can you contact on the outside to help you get through some of these things to take care of your, your sailors and take care of your, your units? Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, on top, it's a huge communication job. It's a huge job of influence. So back to knowing influence, how to wield it appropriately, wielding all your communication skills, small groups, you're going to talk to large groups, you're going to talk up and out, down and in, right? So if you're not comfortable with public speaking, you got to be able to write good emails, communicate with people, you got to be able to listen to your points. So you've got to work those communication skills. And then I'll offer as you move up, again, growing your aperture, right? So if you're currently a unit CMC right now, and you're thinking and kind of getting in a position or you're on an aircraft carrier, right? You're now at that tactical operational cusp. Um, you could be a force mass chief or, mm -hmm. you know, something broader, but what do you know about that broader TICOM organization? Do you know how a flag staff is organized? Right? So you can learn these things. Um, do you understand the political and policy level, the DOD and joint structure? And you do get education on this, right? You'll eventually go to it, but there's nothing that says you can't learn that stuff now. Um, you got to understand strategic thinking and learn how to back it out and look at an organization, not just as the people, but as the components that make up. And that sounds cold and sterile, but mm -hmm. it's a skill and an attribute you need. It doesn't mean you can't connect with people when you see them, but as you move up, you're going to spend less and less time with individual sailors and more time with leaders and broader groups of people. And then I think you got to learn things like, okay, how does manning and man, the broader processes, management processes, right? How is manning and manpower? How does that work? How do I, you know, even at the unit level, right? How do I ensure my unit is manned or how do I send a demand signal to get manning um, all the way up to how the Navy prioritizes manning and buys people and distributes them. Um, and that can go into like supply training and education. How does the Navy do that on the large scale? That's the world you're in now. Um, the shore, the shore is managed differently. Shore installation management is a different animal. So learning about those kind of things now and how the Navy does that. And then finally, I think this is huge budget. So the planning, programming, budgeting, execution process, again, back to great thoughts and things. Nothing gets done unless it's you know made into a requirement and that requirement is resourced with money. You can have all the greatest idea. And as you know, up there, you can only train so many students. You can only get things done with the SEA. But if that thing is not resourced, um, it's dead on arrival. So these are, I encourage you to start learning about the broader Navy um, to prepare for these jobs. And if I may add one last thing to that, Paul, and, and exactly right, especially about the, especially about the money side, but as you continue learning, and I know that you advocate for this all the time, you, no matter how senior you get, no matter how high up, you know, the, 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 the chain, the pecking order you, you would get, you never stop learning. And I'll tell you that that could have not been one of my, my bigger learning things. When I became the force master chief of Naval information forces, you got a dumb signalman turned NC, then go CMC. And now I'm the force master chief of NAV I4. Holy crap. There were many times I can remember that, Boss is going in to get a brief on a particular piece of equipment or your boss at Fleet Forces wants to know how this is going to affect something or another. And I had absolutely zero idea about. But again, back to the networking. Hey, I can call that. Hey, you need to come to my office now. You need to come get, brief me up on this piece of equipment. What do I need to know? What do I need to advocate for? And, and you should always be learning that, you know, no matter how. Uh, top of your game you think you are there's something you don't know and that you have to be open to learning it um, and I cannot thank enough the master chiefs senior chiefs uh, and even junior sailors uh, they have taught me many things that you know I thought I knew I had no clue about but I had to know it quickly because I had to be smart to give bosses you know a, a recommendation or, or a, a way ahead on something so um, never stop learning lifelong learning all the way uh, each and every day. Yes. And then, you know, back it down again for the unit level, just to emphasize this, but you better know like military personnel manual, right? You better know all the major instructions. You don't have to have those things memorized, but you better know where the policy is that governs every bit of sailor quality of work and quality of life. Um, you know, the advancement manual, you better be familiar with it. The evaluation manual, you better be familiar with it, right? So as a young chief or even as a first class, pulling those resources out every now and then, and just reading over them, refreshing yourself, right? Yeah. Keeping up to the changes. Those are the things that I'm telling you, your commanding officer, your department head, they're not in those reading those. So you've got to be the expert 
yep. um, of knowing where the, the content is, where, why it applies. And then you take your experience and that's how you work it into the nuance, right? So yeah, it may say something in black and white, you know it, but you help your boss figure out when you can get to yes, when you can, um, where you can work in the gray area and you definitely keep them away from the red lines. So again, taking time to, to, unfortunately we don't test our senior chiefs and mass chiefs anymore, right? We don't make them do military requirements and things like that. You used to have to learn those things and kind of test your knowledge and show, yeah, I know where all these policies are, but you're going to have to self, uh, learn on those things. So, all right, Toby, I think that'll wrap it for this episode. Um, man, we've covered a ton. We could keep going, but um, I'll work some of that into a later info. If people want to learn more about the program or they want to get in touch with you or, or NLEC about this, what, what do you, uh, where can they do that? So we, uh, most common sites to come to uh, www.netc.navy.mil forward slash NLEC, N-E-L-E-C. Uh, that's the basic uh, site you can get over to us, and, and then it'll take you in whatever direction you want to go, whether it's for command senior enlisted leaders, whether it's for our Navy's ELD program, wherever leadership and ethics you want to know about, uh, that's the best place to start. And um, again, Paul, as always, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate these talks. I appreciate you considering me for these. I, I will tell everybody to, to kind of close it. There's no better time than right now to be a command master chief, command senior chief, a chief of the boat, a senior enlisted leader uh, in our Navy. Um, this is a great, we need good leaders uh, to continue moving our Navy forward. And, uh, you know, if there's any questions or any thoughts or, or ruminants that you need dispelled, uh, please reach out to somebody so we can help talk you through that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Toby. Um, you know, Again, it's great to catch up. You know, we're going to wrap and do another episode here on coaching and feedback, but that's cool. I love it. Uh, hey, I'm proud of the work you're doing. And again, I'm excited for you, right? It is cool to be able to do, to shape the, you know, not just the senior enlisted community's education, but you're you're in there with the flag, you know, the soon-to-be flag officers, the senior commanders, senior commanding officers and stuff like that. So uh, congratulations on that uh, and, and take full advantage of that. So I hope for everyone watching, this has offered you some great insights on the, this opportunity and this kind of potential career path into your leadership portfolio, especially in the Navy or in the military. Um, and I think this is leading self kind of category of things, right? So this is strengthening yourself and reflecting on your part, your own skill sets about where you want to uh, go with this. Uh, so that'll do it for this episode of the Cutlass Podcast. As always, to learn about this topic and others, you can check out the Chief Petty Officer's Guide, the Petty Officer's Guide. Um, I already mentioned the YouTube channel that's out there as well. This video will be on there and there's other videos as well. Uh, and then if you like what you hear, subscribe, share this content, help me get the word out to those who can use it. Um, again, this is Paul Kingsbury. Keep that leadership couple sharp, then take what you learn and go out and make a positive difference for the teams that you have influence over. We'll see you in the next episode.